Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 25 of the podcast. Today, we're talking about Star Trek Insurrection. I've already covered the other three TNG movies on the podcast. The description on Memory Alpha reads, The battle for paradise has begun. As the Dominion War ravages the Alpha Quadrant, an idyllic planet in the middle of an unstable region within the Federation space serves as home to the peaceful Baku, and a veritable fountain of youth. When the Sona and the war-torn Federation plan to exploit the planet in order to rejuvenate themselves, Captain Jean-Luc Picard and the crew of the Starship Enterprise-E must rebel against the Federation in order to save the Baku and expose the atrocities that are about to take place. The screenplay was written by Michael Piller, based on a story by Michael Piller and Rick Berman. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and it first released in cinemas on the 11th of December, 1998. Make it so! This movie shows the title card and then jumps straight to footage, showing credits over the action. It's great music. First Contact still has my favourite music, but I still really enjoy the theme of this movie, and it fits with the film quite well. Also, let's appreciate the set design of this village. We get an idyllic view of primitive living. Looks lovely. And yet, constant manual labour is hard work. There's a reason people invented machines to do the mindless work so we can pursue more interesting things, which I appreciate. This sequence definitely portrays these people as happy. And then there's a sudden contrast in the music as the camera pans up to reveal the village is being watched. And then, shock of all shocks, it's Starfleet who are watching them. We've seen this before in TNG Season 3, Who Watches the Watchers. That's the first big plot idea stolen by this movie. But it works. It makes sense that this is something Starfleet would do multiple times. When we realise it's Data attacking the village, we can only assume there is something wrong with the Starfleet people. I mean, that was shot very creepily. The holographic suit is kinda cool. I like it. And while Brent Spiner's green suit is a very simple visual effect, it works for me. Michael Piller actually wrote a book about his experience writing this movie. It's an interesting read. I still haven't gone through the whole thing in detail, but what I've read has been enlightening. It's called Fade In, From Idea to Draft, The Writing of Star Trek Insurrection. It really highlights the struggles of being a writer in Hollywood. As an indie author, I only have to answer to myself. Sure, I need to listen to my beta readers and my editor, but ultimately, nobody chooses where the story goes but me. It's my baby. But when writing a movie, there are so many different voices that get to have an opinion. It's a wonder any script ever gets completed. So while I may speak critically about some things in the writing of this movie, I don't want to sound like I'm coming off too hard on Pillar. First of all, he was a much more experienced writer than I am. Second of all, Star Trek owes a lot to this man. He came in and revolutionised the show in season 3. He made it good. 
and I think a lot of credit does belong to him. He made TNG a much more character-driven show. He shaped what Star Trek would be from here on, through DS9, Voyager, and even Enterprise, which he wasn't involved in. Our most beloved Star Trek shows wouldn't be what they are without his input. This is the first time we've seen the new dress uniforms to match the standard uniforms introduced in the last movie. I like them. I like them a lot. Picard and crew are involved in a diplomatic mission, entertaining alien representatives. And it's nice to see them engaging in this kind of thing. We haven't seen them doing diplomacy in a movie before. But are we forgetting that we're currently in the middle of the most brutal war the Federation has ever faced? They try to hand wave this away by saying the Federation needs all the allies it can get right now. Which does make sense. But why would they send their flagship, a sovereign class vessel, to entertain these people? The Federation Diplomatic Corps is tied up with Dominion negotiations. Okay. But this isn't the hard negotiating. That appears to have already been done. This is a party. Any minor ship and crew could have done this. The Enterprise should be out there fighting for the survival of the Federation. Michael Piller and Rick Berman both wanted to do a light-hearted movie. And while I don't have any specific objection to that, this hardly seemed like the time. I can understand why they felt this way. First Contact was a much darker movie, and both DS9 and Voyager were in pretty dark times at this moment. DS9 was in the midst of the Dominion War, and Voyager had recently been through a frightening encounter with the Borg and Species 8472. Frankly, I was loving it. This was one of my favourite periods in Star Trek history. But I like the dark stuff. And it wasn't so dark that I felt the need for relief. I mean, this was hardly Battlestar Galactica. Some might have wanted some relief from that darkness in Trek. But not me. This movie felt very out of place. Very out of time to me. I can't help but wonder if instead of doing this, they had actually done a Dominion War movie. Not to try and tread on the toes of what DS9 was doing, but how many World War II movies are out there that focus on individual characters, or maybe a submarine or a platoon of soldiers? There, there are a million stories you can tell within the framework of a war. And I think it would have been very interesting to have actually done a Star Trek war movie. <laughs> but that's just me. I do like the conversation in the turbo lift that hints at these being difficult times for the Federation, including Picard's line, Anyone remember when we used to be explorers? And then we meet Worf. Picard asks him what the hell he's doing here, and his voice fades out as he gives his explanation. I hate this. I really, really hate this. What a cop-out. First contact had a very good valid reason for Worf to be on the Enterprise. Theoretically, so did Nemesis, although they mishandled that as well. I don't know, it just felt like they couldn't be bothered thinking up a reason, so they just... <laughs> I don't know. The aliens that Picard is welcoming as a Federation Protectorate look awesome. Very nice makeup design by Michael Westmore. The thing the alien puts on Picard's head is silly. I think perhaps it was supposed to be amusing? I don't know. In a lot of ways, this movie feels like an extended TV episode. 
I think from the moment Rick Berman told Michael Piller he wanted the next movie to be more lighthearted and comedic, it was never going to have the epic feeling that the last two movies had. Star Trek IV was practically a comedy, and it worked. It's a favourite movie of most Star Trek fans, including me. But I think that's an outlier. It shouldn't have worked as well as it did. They were deliberately trying to model this movie on Star Trek IV. See, here's the problem. Comedy in Star Trek can work. DS9 did some hilarious episodes. They also did some real stinkers in the name of comedy. But we were getting 24 episodes a year at the time. We were getting a movie every couple of years. To dedicate an entire movie to comedy, well, it feels like a bit of a waste to me. Anyway, let's see how this plays out. So, Data was scheduled to observe the Baku village for one week. He should be back on the Enterprise by now, and Admiral Dougherty is calling asking for Data's schematics. Data has taken the other Starfleet observers hostage and is refusing to respond to orders or answer hails. Dougherty very much views this as a malfunctioning piece of technology, which of course it could be, but that probably shouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind when dealing with a sentient android like Data. Dougherty keeps trying to discourage Picard from approaching the planet, and Picard keeps ignoring him. And this is where we get the one and only reference to Data's emotion chip in the movie. Apparently he didn't take it with him. What? In Generations, it was fused into his neural net and couldn't be removed. In First Contact, he could deactivate it. And now, he has apparently removed it and left it on the Enterprise. This was so badly handled in my opinion. You see, Michael Piller wasn't a fan of the emotion chip idea. He felt that since Data had finally gained the thing he'd wanted all his life, that he'd lost the most important part of his character. I disagree. And I would say that First Contact proves my point. They did some interesting stuff in that movie with Data's emotions. They introduced new vulnerabilities to him that he'd never had to deal with before. But the interesting thing is, in an early draft of this script, Pillar actually did some interesting stuff with Data. He had him dealing with some new realities. He'd gotten what he'd always wanted, but it had brought him some unexpected disadvantages. For instance, he no longer enjoyed playing poker. This was interesting. He could have done a lot with this. But instead of moving forward, he went backwards, and he essentially erased all of Data's character development since generations. I was really unhappy about this. This was a mistake. Data's arc in this movie was about him learning what it's like to be a child. It's something we might have seen as a subplot in a TNG episode. And I found it very unsatisfying. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Anyway, given this strange turn of events with Data, Picard decides to delay Worf's return to Deep Space Nine, and ask him to join them. I'm not sure that's especially warranted, story-wise, but it keeps Worf in this movie. Picard all but disobeys the Admiral here by setting a course for the Briar Patch. I guess Doughty didn't explicitly forbid him from coming, he just discouraged it. He says, It's not a good idea, just get me Data's schematics. Picard thinks there's something off about this whole affair. 
This is also the first appearance of the new Admiral uniform. In DS9, while most characters wore the new grey movie uniforms, Admirals continued to wear the bright red Admiral uniform. It was a bit glaring. We actually see Admiral Ross transition to the new uniform during the early part of Season 6, after this movie had shown. And this is our introduction to Roafo, the movie's alien villain, played by legendary actor F. Murray Abraham. Although he's hardly recognisable under all the alien's prosthetics, and frankly, I'm not sure this movie gives him a chance to really show why he's such a legendary actor. I like the dinosaur-esque aliens that work for the sonar. The sonar ship is actually pretty cool. A bit of a unique design for Star Trek. I also like the ship that Data is flying. Very Federation, but quite unique. Bigger than a shuttle, but smaller than a starship. And quite different to a runabout. The visual effects for the Briar Patch are nothing out of the ordinary by today's standards, but at the time they looked amazing, and they still look great today. There is some clear inspiration from real Hubble telescope images. Riker and Troy are investigating the sonar to see what they're all about. Not only have they enslaved two primitive races, but they are known to have produced mass quantities of Ketracel White. Every Star Trek fan at the time knew what this was. It's the drug used by the founders to control the Jem'Hadar soldiers. Sisko and his crew risked everything to destroy a Ketracel White facility in Cardassian space, very recently. We are at war with the Dominion and the Sona are helping them create the very weapons that are killing our people. The Sona are the enemy. Troy's question, why would we be involved with these people, is the understatement of the millennium. It makes absolutely no sense. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate the DS9 reference. I appreciate that they are again at least acknowledging the war. But it just doesn't work. Riker and Troy are acting like, oh, so they're drug dealers, that's not nice. But it's so much more than that. The Sona are enemy agents. They're working for the Dominion. In Season 7 of DS9, we even hear Damar and Wayun talking about how the Sona are requesting Dominion assistance to protect one of their Ketrasil White factories. In this scene, we also get our first hints of something rekindling between Troy and Riker. For some reason, they changed the hologram-esque view screen sound from First Contact with the standard cut and beep in this movie. I'm not sure why. It's just another thing that gives this movie more of a TV feel. Picard and Worf go out in a shuttle to capture and deactivate Data. So Picard tries to distract Data by singing a Gilbert and Sullivan song that he'd recently been rehearsing. I think this was supposed to be funny. <laughs> it just makes me cringe. Picard asks Worf if he knows Gilbert and Sullivan, and he says he hasn't had time to meet all the new crew members. Why would Picard expect Worf to know 19th century Earth composers? Sure, he spent much of his childhood on Earth, but still. I think this was supposed to be funny as well? The bit where the two ships are connected together is pretty suspenseful. So they've captured Data, and they beam down to the Baku village. This movie has one big strength over the other TNG movies. They get out of the soundstage and do a lot of location shooting. Generations had those beautiful vistas on Viridian 3, but nothing in First Contact or Nemesis can compare to the beautiful exterior shots we see in this movie. 
and as I think I've already said, I really liked the outside sets for the Baku village. The Baku, while aliens, look completely human. This is a general weakness of Star Trek dating back to the 60s. Back then, it was often a budgetary issue, and I guess that could still be the case even here. I read that at one point they had considered doing something to the Baku, some dots on their faces somewhere to make them look at least a little alien. It does seem a shame that in a big screen movie, they had supposed aliens that just looked human. Anyway, the initial conflict wraps up pretty quick. The Starfleet crew are not hostages of the Baku, it was actually Data who wouldn't let them leave. But there's still the mystery of what Data was up to. And then we learn that the Baku are technologically advanced. They understand positronics. They once explored the galaxy with warp drive, but they have chosen not to employ their technological knowledge in their daily life. It does seem, however, that they do not wish to lose that knowledge altogether. Their leader says they believe that when you create a machine to do the work of a man, you take something away from the man. I don't agree with that statement. Dougherty now orders Picard to leave the briar patch, but apparently he's not finished here. He says he has a few loose ends to tie up. Which sounds suspicious. Now Riker comes into Troy's office to flirt. It's clear that something is happening between these two. And yet, it's welcome to see them finally sorting themselves out. I think every TNG fan is now saying, It's about time. Troy's reaction to kissing Riker with a beard for the first time was amusing. I did actually find that funny. Anyway, something about the way these two actors work together, I really feel the emotions between them. It turns out the Sona and Doughty were lying. They shot Data first, before he malfunctioned. Why would they do that? And then his ethical and moral subroutines just took over. Data's last memory of the mission is following some children into the hills in his isolation suit. So we beam down to the planet to try to retrace his steps. The kids have a little alien animal as a pet. By today's standards, it's not great CGI. But at the time, it was pretty significant and impressive. This is the beginning of Data's relationship with the Baku boy. The boy is uncomfortable around Data, even afraid, because these people have rejected technology. As Data says, I am the embodiment of all they have rejected. Cut back to Riker and Troy, who are sharing a bath together. Troy is shaving Riker. Apparently, they had to very carefully place soap bubbles around Troy's chest, so as to maintain their intended PG rating. Data finds the lake, and it looks incredible. They found a beautiful place to film the scene, and the water with the snow-capped mountains stand in wonderfully for a paradise planet. I love it. Picard tells the boy that Data doesn't breathe, which is wrong, because it was established in Birthright Part 1, in a conversation between Data and Bashir, that he does breathe to maintain thermal control over his internal systems. Anyway, Data uncovers a cloaked ship under the lake. A Federation ship. The effects for the cloaked doors opening looked pretty cool. And this is the second major plot point stolen from a TNG episode. The ship is a giant holodeck containing a duplicate of the Baku village. It seems they planned to beam them on board during the night. 
The Baku wake up in a holodeck, not knowing that they aren't on their planet any longer. And so this is Worf's arc in the movie. He gets pimples. Great. We get two important pieces of information from Crusher. The Sona refuse to be examined, and the Federation crew from the planet are in surprisingly good health. Better than they should be. Picard puts it together and beams down to the planet. The Baku come from a solar system where terrible wars were fought with weapons created by technology that threatened all life. They came here to escape it. They haven't aged in 300 years. There's a metaphasic radiation in the planet's rings that keeps them from aging. Now, here's a little important point that I want to talk about, the distinction between aging versus growing up. Picard kind of says to the little boy, I guess you're 73 years old. And he says, no, I'm 12. And they say, ah, the, the radiation won't start affecting him until he reaches maturity. There's a common thing in, like, anti-aging stories. But I think, you know, there are two different biological processes going on here. There is the act of maturing, where an infant is born and slowly transforms into an adult. And then there's the act of deteriorating over time, where our bodies just break down and eventually stop working. We refer to both of these processes as aging. But it seems to me that they are two quite different processes. It, it seems that the metaphasic radiation prevents the deterioration, but it doesn't have any impact on the maturing process. I don't know, anyone out there listening, a doctor? I mean, does that make any sense, or am I just talking rubbish? Admiral Dougherty and the Sona planned to discreetly move the Baku from this planet so they can harvest the radiation for themselves. Anij explains that some young Baku are attracted to a faster pace of life, and Picard points out that those in the Federation would sell their souls to slow it down. Picard is tempted by perpetual youth, but he says some of the darkest chapters in Earth's history are the forced removal of a small group of people to satisfy the demands of a large one. This ties in with the classic Star Trek theme of the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. And there's a nice character scene between Picard and Anige, almost romantic. I don't mind the relationship between them, but ultimately it's just a romance of the week, and it will never be addressed again. I hate romances of the week. I find them a ridiculous artifact of 20th century TV. But ultimately, I, like I think a lot of others, felt that this was just a distraction from the real relationship between Picard and Crusher, which still, to this day, really hasn't been explored. They wanted to give Picard some romance. Fine, so use the character he already has such a connection to. I mean, all Crusher really has to do in this movie is wave a tricorder around and talk about her boobs. <laughs> I'm not joking, but we'll get to that. Also, there's a nice moment with Geordie when he gets to see a sunrise for the first time. Picard gives one of his famous speeches. It's a reasonably good one. This planet is in Federation space, and the Sona have the technology to harvest the particles. That means that Starfleet and the Sona are partners in this. They need each other. There is some nuance here though. The Sona are dying. That's why they're constantly going through horrific surgical procedures to replenish their bodies. The particles in the planet's rings could save their lives. Many of them are so far gone that the slow exposure from just living on the planet won't be enough. They'll die before it has a chance to improve their condition. 
These particles could also save the lives of many sick throughout the Federation. So by refusing to vacate the planet, in a sense, the Baku are condemning these sonar to death. But can you force a group of people out of their home to help the sick? And don't forget, these sick are the enemies of the Federation working with the Dominion. And is the Sona's current state natural? We'll talk a bit more about this later, after we learn a bit more about their nature. Doherty says that we're only talking about 600 people, and Picard asks an important question. How many people does it take, Admiral, before it becomes wrong? Again, the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. So Picard is ordered to release the sonar and leave the system. There's nothing more he can do, short of outright disobeying. And so, he goes to his quarters and removes his rank pips. Now that the big secret has been uncovered, the sonar see no need to bother with the whole hollow ship anymore. They're just going to move the Baku by force. Picard's senior crew find him getting ready to sneak off the ship. Of course, they're with him. I like the moment where Data points out the effects of the radiation could be stimulating feelings of rebelliousness common to youth in all of them, except him. To be honest, this is probably true. But that doesn't change the fact that they believe this is the right thing to do, and so does Data. But I like how they ask him for an objective opinion. Picard's hope is that they won't begin the procedure while the planet is inhabited. This is likely true of Doughty, but what of the Sona? Will they really hold back from killing the Baku if necessary? Picard says it's too easy to turn a blind eye to the suffering of a people you don't know. So Riker is going to take the Enterprise out of the briar patch to blow the lid on this whole conspiracy. The goal is to get the Baku to some caves where natural minerals will prevent them from being beamed away. Then we get a nice action scene as fighters fly down and shoot up the village. I felt that tension. Also, the sonar transporter effect is pretty cool. There's some tension between Doughty and the sonar. They're willing to go a lot further than he is. He still wants to keep his support in the Federation Council, but Ruafu talks him around to taking the next step over the line. He agrees to let the sonar ships go and intercept the Enterprise. To fire on a Starfleet ship at a Starfleet Admiral's orders. I like the scene as the Baku trek through the countryside. This gave me some Lord of the Rings vibes. So the little boy is finally starting to talk to Data. And we get the next stage of Data's arc in this movie. We've long explored his desire to be more human, but in this story, he wants to know what it's like to be a child. There's a nice little conversation between him and the kid as they discuss the constant change experienced by a child. It's a nice scene, but it feels like it belongs in a season 3 episode, not a movie. And not at this point in Data's development. He is so far past all of this. So, the Baku have superpowers. They can slow down time. That's an astonishing thing. Or is it just the perception of time they can manipulate? But time slows down for Picard as well. So what, she's causing his brain to process information at an accelerated rate so that time appears to have slowed? Either way, 
that's pretty incredible. And the movie does virtually nothing with it. But I must say, the visual effects here are pretty cool, especially for the time when it was made. <laughs> and then we get the weird boob scene. Data overhears Crusher and Troy talking about their boobs. And then he goes and repeats their words to Worf. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Data doesn't have boobs. Worf doesn't have boobs. Data knows that Worf and himself don't have boobs. And this has got to be the record for the number of times I've ever said boobs in a podcast. I'm sorry about that. I've got no idea what I'm supposed to take away from this scene. Probably another one of those things that are meant to be funny. The drones that tag people for transport are kind of cool. Another nice little action scene. So Geordie is sitting at the helm instead of in engineering, just so that he can be in this scene. I guess he's acting first officer, so it makes sense for him to be on the bridge to exchange opinions with Riker. When things get dicey, he does go back down to engineering. So the Sona use an illegal subspace weapon against the Enterprise. If they have this technology, I can't help but wonder why the Jem'Hadar aren't using it against the Federation and their allies. But anyway. It doesn't bother me that Riker is now sitting at the helm. They're doing a complex manoeuvre, and it's been well established in TNG that Riker is the best pilot on the ship. So, they eject the warp core and detonate it to stop the weapon. Okay. So now they're stranded. It'll probably take them a decade to get to the nearest starbase now. Unless they're towed by another ship. But at least they're still in one piece. And then we get our obligatory minor swear word that seems to have become a part of Star Trek movies since Star Trek V. Just one per movie to keep it edgy. And then Riker activates the manual steering column, which is a joystick. <laughs> okay. I don't really have an opinion on this. I mean, it seemed unnecessary and a little out of place, but whatever. All in all, the space battle was pretty weak, but the visuals of the gas were nice for their time. There's a wounded or dead sonar soldier on the ground. Not sure where it came from, since the sonar are using automated drones to tag the Baku. But Crusher learns something important by scanning his body, so I guess it's just a plot convenience. So what happens in every movie that stars a kid? They lose something, a pet or a teddy bear, and they run back to get it. Which means our heroes have to go after them. Yep, that happens here too. So Picard and Anij are trapped in a cave-in. Anij is injured. They need to get through the rocks quickly so he can get her medical attention. And so now, Picard has the Baku magic superpowers. The movie makes it pretty clear it's Picard who does this, not Anij. So, okay. Picard is a human, and he learned how to stop time. <laughs> the only explanation I can come up with for this is that it's something to do with the radiation on this planet. So now we have super radiation that can not only regenerate human cells to prevent aging, but also grants people magic abilities to manipulate time. That's a lot to ask of radiation. And there's a number of steps too far for me. This is the one time they actually do something meaningful to the plot with this magic power. It's never used to solve the primary story problem. It all falls a bit flat for me. But those beautiful vistas in this movie continue to impress me. It's the main thing that keeps this movie feeling cinematic. Of course, there's no reason for the drones to hover menacingly before attacking... <laughs> 
so Picard and Anij get tagged and are beamed up to the Sona ship. Ruafu has had enough of this. If the Baku want to stay on the planet, let them. He's going to launch the injector, which will kill everyone down there. This is the one line that Doherty doesn't feel he can cross, and we'll see where this takes us in a minute. But first, Picard reveals what Crusher learned from her scan. The Sona and the Baku are the same race. Okay, so years ago, a group of young Baku wanted to live the ways of the offworlders. They wanted technology. So instead of going off on their own, they tried to take over the colony. When they failed, they were exiled to die slowly. What this means exactly, we're not sure. We know they were young when they left the planet, so their lives haven't been extended unnaturally at this point. It seems more than just the fact that away from the planet they become mortal like the rest of us. Now, I'd say their bodies became dependent on the radiation, which means that away from it their bodies deteriorate more quickly than they should. This opens up all kinds of cans of worms. First of all, it means that by removing the Baku from their planet, we'd be killing them too. It also means that the Baku condemned their rebellious children to death. This movie tries to play itself very black and white. And I do agree, obviously, that what Doherty and Rafu have been trying to do all this time is wrong. I believe some things in life are black and white. But sometimes these issues are difficult. There is more subtlety and complexity to this whole thing than I think the movie fully allows itself to explore. Doherty now realises that he's been wrong all along. This was an important moment in the movie. Gene Roddenberry always hated the idea that the Federation would be the bad guys and Rick Berman very much carried Roddenberry's flame. It wouldn't surprise me if a last-minute redemption of Doughty was mandated by Berman. The tragedy of it all is that Doughty says it was for the Federation. It was all for the Federation. But you can't bring good out of evil, can you? So Doughty tries to stop Ruafu and fails. Ruafu kills him in a somewhat gruesome scene. The camera zooms out before it gets too bad. There's a nice little moment when we see Picard tampering with the control panel. He didn't succeed, but it shows that he wasn't just sitting on his hands in that cell. Of course, he'd been actively trying to escape. So Picard tries to talk Gulner out of it all. To make him feel guilty so he'll change his mind. It's the same thing he tried to do with Soren back in Generations, trying to sway the bad guy with his words. The twist is that this time, it works. This was a cool moment, and I wasn't really expecting it, although Golner's discomfort with the latest development was foreshadowed. Picard has a clever plan. As long as Rafu doesn't know anything is wrong, he won't override Golner's authorization. As long as Rafu doesn't know anything is wrong, he won't override Golner's authorization. Data weakens their shield and then beams the bridge crew into the hollow ship, into a simulation of their bridge. The same trick they planned to use against the Baku. Nice one. But I'm very surprised none of the bridge crew know what it feels like to be transported with their own technology. That's a hard one for me to swallow. We see the moment it happens, there's a glow and Rafa says, what was that? As an audience, we don't yet understand what just happened. So Rafo deploys the collector and we get to see it in all its horror. But it's fake. 
Ruafu notices a glitch in the holodeck, but it's too late. And we get that terrible scream. Was that meant to be reminiscent of Kirk's Khan in Star Trek 2? Now Rafu has to go directly to the Collector and reactivate it. So Picard has to go on board and stop him. They techno-babble away to beam Picard through the shields. And this movie continues the trend from First Contact, making Picard an action hero. This time he gets to have a shooting fight with Ruafu. So this planet has helped Riker and Troy remember how they feel about each other. And that will continue on to the next film, which is great. Picard arranges a reunion between Baku mother and Sonar son to start the healing process. He hopes the two groups can overcome their differences. Except those Sona who are too far gone and will shortly die from their condition, of course. But we won't talk about that because this movie is light-hearted and fun! Picard intends to continue pursuing a relationship with Anige. He says he'll use his shore leave to come back to her when he can. Of course, we'll never hear of her again. In the end, it's just another stupid romance of the week. The movie closes out with Data playing in the hay with the kid. It's time to go home now. This is the culmination of Data's arc, learning about what it is to be a child. And it falls really, really flat for me. So the crew beam back up to the ship as the TNG theme plays and the Enterprise warps off to its next adventure. It feels so much like a stock weekly TV ending. Nothing has changed in the universe, and apart from Riker and Troy, nothing has changed in our characters. I came out of the cinema, having seen this for the first time, feeling a little empty. Is that it? There was a lot of elements in this movie that I liked, and I can enjoy this film on rewatches, but it kind of missed the mark for me. But it's still light years better than what would follow it, in the form of Star Trek Nemesis. So by now, I'm sure you've heard the news. The Snyder Cut is coming! That's right, the much-hoped-for Zack Snyder Cut of the Justice League movie is going to be a reality. It's expected to go live in HBO Max sometime next year. I'm very excited to see how Zack's original vision plays out for this movie and perhaps bring a better conclusion to the story arc that began with Man of Steel. But my first thought when I heard the news was, that's nice, but will I get to see it? HBO Max is an American streaming service that's about to go online. However, there's a lot of talk that they plan to go international with the service, and it's hoped that it will be available in many countries by the time the Snyder Cut releases. I'm holding my breath, hoping that Australia will be one of those. So, it seems a perfect time to be delving into the DC Extended Universe movies. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Next episode, in two weeks' time, I'll be talking about Man of Steel. I can't wait to geek out over this movie with you. Catch you then. <laughs>